with me. Turn with me to John chapter 10 uh, once again. If you don't have your own Bibles with you, would you uh, use either your bulletins, the passage is printed in there, or one of the blue pew Bibles. You'll find the passage this morning on page 896 if you like to have a Bible in your hands as we look at the Word of God. We arrive today at the last of a series of public conversations, discourses is the proper name of them, that Jesus has been having with the Jewish leaders, with the Jewish people of the day. They began back in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, if, if we were, we're not going to right now, but if we were to turn back there, we'll see that as they begin, and really as you wrap up this first discourse in chapter 5, the Jews at that time are seeking to kill him because he was, and this is the quote from there, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They end today in a similar conclusion to where we began back in chapter 5. However, however, there is hope that is granted at the end of this passage today. At the end of this passage, they're unable to arrest Jesus at that particular time. He returns to where the ministry of John the Baptist had originally been at the beginning of this gospel, and he continues his ministry there, and many come to believe in him. So there is hope, even though there's some darkness in the passage that is before us today. Uh, Bert, I'm feeling a little echo on this. Is, is anybody else hearing an echo in it, or is it just me? All right, a little bit of an echo if there's a way to turn down the, uh, the echo on it this morning. In any case, uh, let me read for us this portion of the Word of God. I'm going to begin at verse 22, and I'll take it through the end of the chapter. This is the very Word of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, 
and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Are you in good hands? Let's pray. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open and every single desire in this room is known and from whom no secrets are hid. We pray that today, this living and active and penetrating and searching word would do its work of showing to us Jesus Christ and that we, your people, would delight in seeing him afresh and once again. We pray it in his name. Amen. All right, if you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, and, uh, and I mention them again as I did uh, a couple of times recently, noting that I reread the entire series uh, this summer, uh, well, not this summer, I finished it in September, and so you have to bear with me uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of times of using it as a basis of analogy. If you're familiar with the series, then you know the terrific scene that takes place in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Father Christmas comes to the three present Pavenzi children to distribute gifts to each one of them. Uh, now, if you'll recall, up to that point, it had been in Narnia uh, ever winter but never Christmas. And then Father Christmas arrives and gives these gifts to each of the children who are there. To Peter, he gives the, the gift of the sword and the shield. Peter's going to be the high king, and so he gets gifts that correspond to that. To Susan, he gives a, a, a bow and an arrow, a quiver full of arrows, and additionally to her, he gives a horn, and the horn can be blown in a case of dire circumstances, extreme emergency, and help will come in some form when the horn is blown. And then, of course, to Lucy, the youngest, he gives a small dagger, but the most significant gift that Lucy gets is this cordial that can be used for healing. So in an extreme circumstance, if someone has been uh, dreadfully wounded, then a few drops of this cordial can serve to make them well. And, and one of the delights of the book is not only in this original giving, but is in the subsequent books when the children, through whatever means, return back to Narnia, and, and they, you come to a point where they once again have these gifts in their possession, where they are, are rediscovered or reappointed to them or given to them once again. 
and you feel at that point in the story that, okay, every, everything's as it should be. Things are now in place. The gifts have been restored to their proper people and will get going with the work that needs to be done because things are set and they have their gifts. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, this is a regular feature in literature, in any literature that has a sequel. You're going to build upon a few things that have come in early on, and that's going to make you feel good about your chances in the upcoming saga. So, for example, in the new Star Wars movie uh, that's supposed to come out in December, I guarantee you there will be these mini references that are there to things that have come before because they make the audience feel good. They make us realize, okay, things are going to be okay. I've seen that thing before, and I know now that things will turn out well. Perhaps this is one way for us to think about the heritage of the Reformation and what the Reformation was all about. The Lord Jesus, and we'll see it in our text today, the Lord Jesus has given good and valuable and priceless gifts and treasures to his church, both for our good, our benefit, and for our employment, so that we can use the gifts that he has given to us. But here's the reality. The reality is, and has been over the course of history, that sometimes we, and, and thinking we as the church, and not just one individual church, but the church collectively, we as the church, or we as individuals, can forget about the good things that God has given to us. We can lose track of the gifts and the value that those gifts have in the midst of the clutter of life. A lot of things get attached to life, and when a lot of things get attached to us, the clutter tends to match that which is good and make us forget about them. Well, the, the, the Reformation was a dusting off of treasures from the attic, or if you will, a, a going down into a, a treasure chamber and rediscovering there the, the original gifts that Jesus has given to his church and taking them out and saying, okay, okay, things will be okay now because the gifts have been given back or have been restored to the one to whom they were given, the church of Jesus Christ. So maybe that's a way for us to think of the passage that is before us today. Consider the gifts that are given by the Lord Jesus Christ in our passage this morning. The first that is given to us is the gift of clarity. So the Jews come to Jesus and they say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep our souls burning? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, it's hard to know the spirit in which the question was asked. Was it a true spirit of wanting to know if he was the Christ, or, or were they simply looking for the word to be said, and at the moment the word he said, that was an aha moment, we got you. We, we know we can take you right now because he said it. But how long will you keep us in, in suspense? 
tell us plainly. And Jesus looks at them and says, I've told you. I, I have told you. The greatest gift that God can give to us is the ability to see Jesus clearly. To have clarity of thought about the identity of Jesus is the greatest gift that is given to us. The Apostle John leaves us in no doubt about the reason why he has written this book, and it's good to go to it periodically to remind ourselves of it. It's recorded for us in John chapter 20. He says that he writes these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What's the message? Why do we have this book? What does God want for you from this book? To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And those are the issues that are at stake in this section of Scripture. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we should be expecting and that we have been expecting from the earliest times of our constitution as a nation? Are you the Christ? Jesus points to his words and his works to affirm his identity. He says to them, I have told you, my words, I have told you who I am. My works bear witness that what I do, I do in the name of the Father. And, and so he says, the answer to your question is, look, look at the works and listen to the words that I've said. But of course, they still lack clarity. And they are incensed enough to kill him but because he is, in the way that he says it, and we'll get to this in a moment, he's so closely associating himself with God that is troubling. To which Jesus responds with a quotation, and this is the second part of our passage. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address it just in terms of summary here because getting into it too deep would, I think, lead us uh, a little bit off this morning. Jesus quotes to them from Psalm 82, and he basically is saying to them that, listen, within your law, within the scriptures themselves, the word words can be used and have a very broad meaning to them, and that even includes the word God. If he calls them gods to whom the word of God came, and you can read that later in Psalm 82, then how can it be offensive to you if I, the one who have been consecrated by God, set apart and sent by the Father to you, how can it be offensive to you if I call myself the Son of God? Now, that's in Psalm 82 as well, Son of the Almighty. And essentially what he's saying to them is, listen, even your word, the Bible that you uphold, even it allows a latitude of application as it relates to the word God and Son of God. 
how specifically does it actually apply to me more so than those originally to whom the word of God came? In essence, what Jesus seems to be saying to them is indeed you are unclear about who I am. You understand neither that I am the Christ, despite the fact that I've told you so. You do not understand that I can say I am the Son of God and be completely within the intent of Scripture. Indeed, you are unclear, but your lack of clarity is not my fault. Your lack of clarity is not due to the fact that I haven't spoken to you clearly, for indeed I have spoken to you clearly. I've told you exactly who I am. Your lack of clarity isn't due to the fact that I haven't done any work amongst you, because in fact I have done works amongst you. So in what I've said and in what I've done, I have evidenced who I am. Your lack of clarity is not my failure, it is your failure. It's a failure of belief on your part. You are choosing, and this is what we have seen in the building chapters here, you are choosing willful and unfaithful ignorance and blindness. For a moment, just appreciate the irony of their standing there looking at Jesus and saying, listening to Jesus speak and tell them who he is and saying, you're not telling us who you are and you're not showing us the works. And he's like, of course I am. I'm sitting here speaking to you right now and you've seen all the works that I have done. No, 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 you're choosing ignorance. You're choosing blindness. But of course, in this section, Jesus steps the explanation back even further than that, back to the councils of eternity. Look with me at verses 26 and 27 in terms of what Jesus says. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There's a reason you don't believe, and this is the reason. You are not among my sheep. My sheep have clarity because I give them clarity. I let them see. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's no lack of clarity for those who are the sheep that belong to that good shepherd. There is perfect clarity for those who are their sheep, his sheep. And in just a few chapters, we're going to get this great request that is given to Philip by some Greeks, Greeks who visit, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We would see Jesus. Well, what the Reformation is, is the Reformation is the gift of decluttering of decluttering so that we can see Jesus with clarity, so that we can read the scriptures in our language, so that we can hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in our language, 
and explained as much as possible with language that makes sense and is comprehensible to us. I, I make a regular gardening mistake. The regular gardening mistake that I make is I plant too much. I plant too much and it grows up and you can't see the plants as well because you've planted too much. And I go, right, I've got to declutter. I've got to take some things out so that I can see which is that which is sweet and that which is beautiful. The Reformation is a decluttering. Too much has been added on top of the things that are good and sweet and precious and true. And clarity is taken by removing the clutter and allowing us to see. The second gift that is given in this passage is clearly and explicitly stated in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now my quick count that I did tells me that this is the 13th time in this gospel that Jesus has declared and John has recorded the giving of this gift of eternal life. The first one, of course, you'll recall, it's one of the most famous passages in scripture from John well, John 3, 15 and 16 in the conversation to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. This now the 13th time that it has been promised and extended as a gift Eternal life is the gift that is given, bestowed, and it is, and, and this is what is significant, it's knowable. It's knowable. It's, it's not something that's kept a secret or something that's kind of tucked away, kept in the background. I don't want to tell them about this one because this one will really blow them away. You can know that you have eternal life. Jesus says, I give to my sheep, eternal life. Lucy Porgel in the Chronicle of Narnia was good for a limited healing, but Jesus gives to the church an imperishable, unbound life to his sheep. And, and if you need to put it, just to get your head around it, in the framework of an adventure story, put it in the framework of an adventure story where Jesus comes to you and says, this is eternal life. You take this with you on your adventures. I'm giving to you, to my sheep, eternal life. But there's, there's a unique thing about this particular gift, uh, and that is namely that it's inseparable from the giver. Typically speaking, of course, when we give a gift, if I give a gift to you, in the giving of the gift, comes out of my hands and it goes into your hands. There's, uh, if you will, something of a, a transfer of ownership, right? I had possession of it, but I give it to you. And now you have possession of that gift. But eternal life is different than that because life and eternal life is bound up in the person of the Son of God. One of the earliest phrases that we read from this gospel is, in him 
was life. In him was life. Not, not separate from him, not along with him, not he lived a long time. In him was life. It's part of the essence of his being, of his substance, of who he is. And so as Jesus is giving to the church, to you, eternal life, he is giving himself. This is a life that is in him, and it is in him alone. And so the reformers called it solus Christus. This is by and in Christ alone. Life, eternal life, is inseparable from Jesus himself. We could say that Jesus is giving himself to us in eternal life, and that's kind of the way he says it right here. But you can completely reverse the image as well, which also fits with the separating idea, that when Jesus is giving eternal life, what he's doing is he's calling us into himself. He's bringing us into union with himself, and his life is an eternal life that we then possess as we possess him and he possesses us. He gives the gift of clarity. He gives the gift of eternal life, and he gives the gift then of security and assurance. Perhaps this is the most stunning gift that is given in this passage. It is the gift of knowing that that which has been given to us is utterly and completely safe and secure. It will not diminish. You will not drop it along the way somewhere. You will not fumble the ball. You will not lose track of that which has been given to you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the gift of God, from this love of God. What does Jesus say? They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to take it out of the Father's hand, will be able to snatch it from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Eternal life is secure because it is out of our hands. It's out of our hands, and it is firmly in the hands not only of the Son, and that would be enough in and of itself, but of the Father as well. Jesus says, I in the Father are one. And he's pointing here especially to the unity of purpose, the unity of words, the unity of work of the Father and of the Son. United, one intention, the one intention of the Father and the Son is to preserve and to protect you, his gathered flock. That's what Jesus is saying. My, no one snatches them out of my hand. No one snatches you out of the hands of Jesus. And no one snatches you out of the hands of the Father. 
back in verse 12 of, of this particular chapter as Jesus was working through the, the sheepfold analogy, he noted that in the context of the talk about the hireling, that a wolf will come in and snatch, right? And will, will come in, snatch and grab and pull it out and seek to, to carry off the small, the weak, whatever they can get hold of. And here, Jesus reconnects us to that idea and says that no snatching will take place. No snatching of you because you are held by the omnipotent right hand of God. Verses from Isaiah on the front of your bulletin. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And, and to read the next one. I will take hold of your right hand with my right hand, and nobody snatches you out of my hand. Now I and the Father are one. Maybe primarily Jesus saying we are united in purpose. We have one desire, one intention. We will protect the gathered sheep. But of course it is language that assumes a unity and intimacy that he gets even more explicit about later in verse 38, understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It assumes an intimacy beyond what seems ought to be stated by a mere man. And so the stones get picked up again. But neither stones, nor wolves, nor thieves, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from a salvation that is of the Lord. Your salvation, your membership in the flock is secure. It cannot be snatched away because it is in the hands of the Lord. Now at the time of the Reformation, this doctrine of assurance this idea of eternal security was rediscovered in all of its glory because we realize that salvation is not of ourselves, but it is completely and utterly of the Lord, not only in its inception, but in its preservation. It's all of God. And when that was preached, immediately there were those who picked up stones and said, listen, if, if you teach this, if you stand up in a pulpit and you teach people this idea, this doctrine of a gratuitous salvation and of eternal life that is given by Christ alone, that is secured by God the Father and secured by God the Son, and if we just go a few more chapters into the Gospel of John, secured by the Holy Spirit, if you teach this, then you're setting up a system that is begging for abuse, right? It just has to, to be misused. It's like, it's like telling a worker 
hey, we, we'd like you to come and work for our company. And by the way, you will never be fired. And by the way, your salary will always be sufficient. And by the way, you'll always get a bonus. You'll always get a bonus. You, you, you look at that. And you say, well, well that's going to demotivate. Right? That, that demotivates workers. Now, however true that is on the earthly scale, when, when the reformers hear that, when the reformers hear, listen, you're going to serve to demotivate the people of God from doing that which is good, they look at it and they go, I don't seem to see what the Bible has to say about this. The Bible seems to suggest something different than that. It says that when the sheep hear the voice, they don't go, awesome, it's party time, so now we can do whatever we like. I'm in the flock, we can't get out of the flock. Everything's set, everything's secure. No, when the sheep hear the voice, they follow. When, when the blind receive sight, they don't go, great, I don't need Jesus anymore. I, I, I can go out and do all these things on my own now. No, no, no. They fall down at the feet of Jesus and they worship. When people hear the truth and when people are set free, they don't go, terrific, who needs the law anymore? Let's get rid of that. That was a bummer anyway. No, no, no. They abide and they keep. They keep that which is given. That's the character of grace. That's the character of being secure in Christ. That's the evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so the gifts are given. Think of them however is helpful for you. But clarity. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Think of it as Jesus handing to you a sword with clarity. The ability to see, the ability to understand. That's your gift. Here you go. Eternal life is given as a gift. Eternal, everlasting, abundant life. Call it a cordial. It's the healing of the nations. It's the balm of Gilead. It's that which brings the water of life to the people of God. And security is given. No one will take it from you. Call it a horn, if you will. If it helps you, call it a horn. It is the horn you can blow in your deepest, darkest nights. And when you blow it, the help will come. The promise of God will come to you and say, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Gifts given, gifts rediscovered. In closing, let me address this from two perspectives. First of all, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the result of being given and of hearing again of these gifts in your life should be twofold. In the first place, they should comfort you. We forget them, though we need them. What these gifts say to us again is that all will be well with our souls. All will be well. It is safe and secure and all about Christ and in his hands. All 
will be well. If you've never memorized John 10, 28 to 30, that's your assignment. There you go. I want something practical. Memorize John 10, 38, uh, 28 to 30. But B, so that's the first thing. You should be comforted. B, gifts are given to be used. Gifts are not entrusted to us to be wall-mounted. Gifts are not given to us to be stuck in a treasure chamber, put in a safe under lock and key. Gifts are given to the church, to the people of God, to be used. They do not only comfort you, they establish you in every good work and word. This is your battle armor that you're being given. Jesus came to this earth and he possessed all of these gifts. He possessed the gift of clarity. He possessed the gift of life. He possessed the gift of security. Nothing would take place in his life outside the will of his heavenly father. But he came into this world as one sent into this world with a mission to collect up the sheep. We're not there yet. But what we'll read from him is, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So I'm sending you. I've been given these gifts. I possess these gifts. I'm giving you these gifts now. Fight the good fight. Carry him with you. Carry him into the battle will this world. You are free. You are safe. Do not be afraid. Go. Go in word and in deed and faith. For those of you who are here today who are skeptical, who are unbelieving, who are sleeping, I have done what I can do in seeking to make clear the word of the living God. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, offers to you clarity, eternal life, and security. If you're skeptical, you have business with him. You have business with him. Ask him to give you that which you cannot attain with your own hands. If you don't know it, as you grow older, you will realize it. Your hands are not trustworthy. That which you thought could not be taken out of your grasp will be taken out of your grasp. Your hands, strong now if you are young, will grow weak. They will grow cold. Drop things. Don't trust your hands. There are good hands willing to hold you and willing to care for you. Ask Jesus, and He will give you the gift of God, gratuitous love that cannot be snatched away. Jesus. Thank you for that which is so precious. 
May our minds and our lives be decluttered so that we can see you and you alone and so that we can be sent as you were sent. We pray in your name. Amen.